and we back and we back and we back Twenty thousand feet up, breaking all the lights on the doors, and I ain't seen no ceilings. We came in through the top floor. Three oars rip right round your jugular. Three oars rip right round your jugular. You're okay. listening. Sorry. Oh, I didn't do the thing. <laughs> you didn't count us. Okay, down. okay, okay. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Three. You're listening to Feminist Killjoys, Ph.D., in our feminism, pop culture, and politics, as discussed by two professional killjoys. I'm Rachel. And I'm Melody. And today we'll be talking about radical politics. Specifically, we'll probably only get to dig into anarchism, but in the future we'll talk about communism and Marxism and all sorts of good things. Uh, And we'll give you an update on just generally our return. But first, Melody, where can our listeners find us on the Internet? In select places, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and leave us a review, but technically only leave us a review on iTunes and technically only if you can, because sometimes it's complicated. You can follow us on Instagram. I'm back on the gram, by the way. Uh, Facebook, where you can like us, Feminist Killjoys PhD podcast. You can just like us or you can join our closed community group, which is Feminist Killjoys community dash WTF power exclamation point. And so that will be a closed group where you can talk with us about random issues and podcast topics. And then we have a Twitter account, FKJ underscore PhD. You can email us at FKJ.PhD at gmail.com. And we also have a mixtape on Spotify, Feminist Killjoys PhD mixtape. Check that out. I'm still not on the spot. Do they call that the spot? Like how the gram and the snap? Uh, the phi? Okay. Still old. All right. Moving what's on. What's the phi? What's no, the phi? I'm just, you know, like how they say uh, get on the snap and get on the gram? Like, do they have a one syllable thing for the spot or the phi, like Spotify? Oh, I get it. Um, I don't know, but we can pretend that, that they do. Not on the phi yet? They. Uh, and if you, <laughs> if you have any extra dollars and want to support feminist media makers, you can leave us a one-time donation on our website, which is feministkilljoyspodcast.com. Just click on the birdie. Or you can leave us a micro monthly donation on our Patreon account. Just search for our podcast there. And new and improved of our Patreon subscribers is that if you make a monthly micro donation, you will also, starting on Wednesday of this week, be able to have our brand new newsletter curated by Rachel sent directly to your email box. Is there anything you want to add about the brand new newsletter, Rachel? Yes, the newsletter will be the first time that we reveal our new logo publicly. uh, And then like the day after that, that I'll release it on the gram and other social media places. And our new logo is brought to us by Hard Copy Cartel, which is founded and run by my friend and former roommate, just like you, a former roommate, Lindsay. And she owns this all woman design illustration and strategy company and uh, gave us our logo and it helped sponsor the newsletter with it. So we're really excited about the logo and thank you to Hard Copy Cartel. Whoop, whoop. And we back and we back and we we're back. back. Yay. How's everything been for a month? Everything's been fine. I've been I traveled a few times. I went to Baltimore to give a couple talks 
I'm in Milwaukee currently. Just no big deal. I mean, expand on that. You are like a big deal. You talked not only at colleges, which is fancy, but also read Emma's bookstore, which is fucking rad. And it was awesome. And you got to meet Shireen. Shireen is one of our listeners. We were we're happy that you got to meet IRL. So yeah, that's so cool. You're very important, fancy, and you're doing good work by talking about how racist bike culture is. Yes. So I got to do that. And the cool thing about Baltimore is that it reminds me of Milwaukee. So it's like kind of like a secondary home feeling. But also at Morgan State, where I gave my first talk, it was the first time that I ever talked to like a a majority, I'd say like 99% POC group. Usually when I do these bike talks, it's like, you know, filled with white people trying to figure out what they're doing wrong. And so it was really interesting to give a talk because I got to frame things differently and just kind of talk to them as like, watch out for the system and like work against the system. And it was just awesome to be able to talk. I'd prefer to talk to those spaces. But I know my job as a white person is to really talk to the white people about what they're messing up. But it was a cool, it was a cool opportunity to do that. Yeah. And you get to like, learn more. Obviously, you probably learn more, more things you didn't know, maybe when you're in those spaces. Exactly. That's great. I'm proud of you. Thanks. So yeah, and then basically, as teachers out there know, it's almost the end of the school year. So I'm just kind of getting through the last couple weeks. My students are making zines. So I don't I don't know how they feel about that. But I'm excited about it. And so that's going to be their final project. And then I will have the summer to party and keep working because I'm including a weekend in Boston. Finally, knock on wood. So we can see Chance together. I know. I'm excited. And Solange. Uh, Yeah. All sorts of other things. Boston Calling, if anybody's going to be there, let us know. Yeah, totally. I've also, it's the end of the semester, but uh, a lot more feelings because because it's like my I'm trying to trust that this isn't like my last semester teaching college ever in my whole life. But it's like officially my last college, my last semester rather at the school that I've been teaching at for four years. Higher education employment is awful and terrible. And I am now, you know, a statistic of a person with a PhD who doesn't have a full time academic job. And that's as I've talked about a lot on the show. But so really, this month has been more coping with that, but also shifting from like depression to optimism and uh, trying to be optimistic, even though I'm also like facing the reality of like losing a paycheck. But I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to hustle and I'm going to figure it out. And I'm going to do a lot more work on the podcast because <laughs> I'm going to have time. That's good for all of us then. Indeed. All right. Indeed. Well, hey, well, we've been forcing this guest of ours to just stay quiet. So it's true. Should we do the big reveal? <laughs> yeah, we have somebody joining us today. Brrr. Live in the studio. Hey, y'all. Elias is the host of the New England Unsettler, which we've mentioned on the show before. It's an awesome radio show, live radio show that is then also archived as a podcast. Also, the front man of Bent Shapes, no big deal. So Elias is a big deal and uh, also an anarchist. It's true. And we a thought... A real live anarchist a real live studio. anarchist. It's true. Wow. I'm a little worried for my safety, but... I think I'm You're gonna not going to destroy our property, are you? <laughs> I'm going to try worked... to smash anything. <laughs> I've worked really hard for my property, and I feel like <laughs> if you're going to smash it, then I'm going to call the police. Oh, jeez. I don't understand your anger. Well, um, I've got my mask off, so I probably yeah. won't do anything too ridiculous. <laughs> That's when we have to be nervous, when the black bandanas are over faces. 
which is usually just trying to protect ourselves from pepper spray and stuff. But yeah, so we're excited to have Elias here to talk to us because we've had a lot of people say that a good podcast episode topic would be to talk about radical politics. We identify or we talk openly about radical left politics. We had an episode on the black bloc. So some of this will be sort of, we, we got a little bit into anarchy when we had our black bloc episode, but we really kind of want to unpack it more. In theory, we were going to try to do anarchism, Marxism, communism, socialism, which there are some nuances amongst, but we probably won't have time for all that, especially because another thing we want to clarify is the difference between being a radical pause feminist and a radical feminist. So we'll talk about that. But first, before we dig into all of this, I would love to hear if we could just share like when we realized that we weren't like just liberals, because I think um, there's still a lot of people that are like, especially my students, because I and we'll talk about this a little bit later, too. But, you know, they can sense that I care about social justice and thus think that, oh, she's like a liberal. She's a Democrat, which makes me laugh because I'm definitely not. So, Mel, like, did you have a moment when you were like, oh, the Democrats aren't like actually the best solution to life problems. I think that moment happened when Obama got elected. And the reason why I'm putting that so late into my life is because when I was in college, that was when George W. Bush was in office. And in my social circles, basically, everybody was against the war. Everybody was against George W. Bush. There wasn't a lot of splintering because at least in my world in Milwaukee, people were kind of all in it together, like the left. But then as that era wore down, thankfully, and President Obama got elected, I started noticing that my friends were kind of going in different paths in terms of their leftist politics. And so I realized that there are some people that will just tow the Democratic line no matter what. And so when I started to be upset with some of the stuff that Obama was doing, you know, very, very soon after he got elected, actually. So I was very excited to hear that he was going to close Guantanamo Bay. And then he didn't. And then it was a wake up call for me that democratic politics is not always the solution and not the answer that we want, which was new for me, because like I said, all through college, I was with a Republican president who like was awful. And so I just assumed that the opposite would be a lot better and more in line with what I was feeling. And then, you know, as Hillary Clinton started to come into the fold even later, that was getting confirmed for me because friends of mine that I thought were pretty radical were, again, towing the Democratic line and saying, like, Hillary Clinton is the best candidate. And I just looked at them and I said, what? Why? I don't even understand why you would be arguing that at this moment. Once that started happening, I realized that I really don't identify with as a Democrat. I just didn't realize it until, you know, a Democrat was actually in office. Mm -hmm. And then on top of it, I was continually getting exposed to things like the Black Bloc and, you know, things that I was exposed to when George Bush was in office, but I wasn't really clear on how they they lined up politically, you know, within the mm -hmm. leftist system. And so as I got to know different types of radical people, I realized that pretty much all of them were very disenfranchised from the traditional political system that we all live in. And so mm -hmm. that gave me a lot of clues as to who I was. That's the basic story. But I know, like you, Rachel, you you kind of figured it out a little bit earlier than I did, right? I guess, but only, th I mean, yeah, I guess, because I wasn't, it was basically about halfway through my freshman year of college that I was like, oh, I have to stop calling myself a liberal. I remember changing my MySpace, um, MySpace prof like bio 
was, well, there was a Riley, Riley Kiley quote in there. But then after that, it said like, <laughs> of course, it said it said like bleeding heart, liberal, vegan, like, you know, it was just like uh-huh. a list of things. And I remember like right before winter break, like changing liberal to leftist. So like I remember being like, oh, I'm not a liberal, actually. But that's only because I joined an activist group on campus and was so it's like the most special and wonderful people. One of like one of the best parts of my life in Chicago was the fact that I got to be in this group of people who taught me so much. And I just like want to say some names because I, uh, I just like really value like not acting like I just knew all this or like learned all this, like not even just reading books and books helped, but really my mentors, um, Giuseppe, Scribbler, Ben, I'm just gonna, I know those are all dudes, which is kind of unfortunate. Marisol, Andrea, like, I just like want to name names and just like say that it was activists and people who were thinking about these things and had done more reading or been immersed in um, activist communities prior to college, which I had been too. I went to like Food Not Bombs. So I was like exposed to like anarcho punk kids, but I like didn't get it. Like it just like wasn't, I just like didn't get it. I hadn't learned enough to know what what that all meant. I was still like campaigning for Dennis Kucinich my freshman year. So like I was, you know, but really like by the time I was just like learning from people being in this activist group, I I was like, okay, I'm not a liberal. I still didn't have like the kind of analysis I have now because it took years before I was like reading more and really making connections and meeting more, more radicals and organizers and learning more about history. And I still have so much more to learn and understand. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just so grateful for that group because it like 100% changed my life and impacted who I am in in a way that I'm so, so grateful for. So, so there's all that. And that's kind of like how, but then the why is because, you know, it became very clear to me that the problems with our economic system, with racism, with sexism, all of these things were 100% not going to be solved if the system that we existed in was still in place. It became very clear to me, particularly about economics. We can't have like a, a just world if we have an economic system that requires people to be poor, which of course resonated with me because I grew up poor. So that was also helpful. What about you, Elias? So uh, I was recognizing a lot of what you both said um, as uh, similar experiences to my own. Um, Definitely uh, college was an eye-opening time for me. I had talked to you, Rachel, prior to this about how in high school I was basically like a centrist Democrat. I believed in pacifism generally, but for some reason supported the initial forays into strikes on Iraq, primarily because I grew up in an educational system where, you know, we highlighted um, the Holocaust, which I think is very important, but from a standpoint where it was like, well, and then America dropped bombs and that's what stopped the Holocaust. And we got engaged because we wanted to protect people and all this other stuff. And then obviously, you know, as you expand your knowledge about what what the U.S.'s involvements in global war, you know, where they came from, um, why we got involved in certain things when we started getting involved, as opposed to when we realized what atrocities were being committed, you realize that there are ulterior motives to each of those interventions that, you know, in reality, this wasn't some sort of selfless act. You start becoming aware of America as an imperialist force, as uh, a force of sort of a a, a world police force. And so my 
my ideas about foreign intervention changed pretty quickly and I started sort of reassessing everything on uh, in terms of the political platform of the Democrats. I was I like that you mentioned Dennis Kucinich because that was also sort of your dude. Yeah, that was also <laughs> a person that I supported. Like I thought a lot about the Green Party. I think I was registered as a Green for like a minute. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like constantly exploring the sort of the outer fringes of what could still be called mainstream politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, I like knew of the term anarchy, but hadn't really heard people talking seriously about anarchism, which I think are two, even though they're sort of interchangeable as terms, anarchy, I think, is sort of associated with the, you know, the big scrawled A in a circle right. kind of anarchy equals chaos type idea. And then anarchism as a method of organizing society and people around free association and, you know, mutual aid um, and community was not something that I really understood until I did a little bit more reading and talked to a few more people. But um, some of that came through music. And as you said, anarcho punks and and people who had, um, you know, read this or that and recommended this or that or uh, crime think as well was a big influence, even though they've had some, um, you know, I mean, they they have their faults as as do all sort of uh, activists in terms of how they've addressed things in the past. But I think that they do a pretty good job of outreach. Mel, were you familiar with Crime Think at all? <laughs> I loved Crime Think. I thought that they it was awesome. Well, because that was some of the first uh, Cop Watch stuff that I had seen come out. Mm, yeah. And they also printed the biography autobiography called Invasion. Have you either of you yep. read that one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that technically, I know it's anonymous, but did everybody decide that that was Peter Young's book? I don't know if that was. I don't actually know uh, any discussion around that. Do you, do you have any uh, idea? The the pseudonym was, was a Mac evasion that, that he wrote it under? Yeah. yeah. And Peter Young is the one... Peter Young not, was one of the righteous animal rights activists yeah, who got put in jail. jail for, that's what I thought. It, it was connected to like the Shack 7 or something like during right. that whole time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I'm remembering this. Yeah. And he got jailed in Wisconsin. And so we had a lot of vegan that's rights right. stuff coming that's in right. through the Midwest. So that's why that name's familiar. People were thinking that it was his. But anyways, I just remember mm. reading that and being like totally inspired as a youngster, like, about, you know, anti-consumerism. And I'm trying to get a copy. They were out of it at uh, mm. Microcosm when I was in Portland. I didn't I didn't realize that it was a crime think book. I thought it was Microcosm the whole time. But anyways, it's all about, oh. for those of you who haven't read it, it's all about like living for free, basically, and like scams to get food. Not scams is the bad word, but like ways to get food for free at places like Whole Foods and Dumpstering and just makes it seem like makes living outside of a capitalistic society but taking advantage of it like very doable and possible where most people see it as just like a pipe dream but kind of showing you how it's romantic but it also shows you the struggles but i was very much inspired by it and would just steal tampons from whole foods (laughs) after reading that so (laughs) yeah i know there was some criticism about that book and sort of the the author's sort of treatment of as sort of a lifestylist and sort of you know the people that there wasn't a lot of representation of like other types of activists like it was very clearly written by a dude and Mm -hmm. but at the time that I read it it was 
it was super inspiring. And Abby Hoffman's like steal this book mm-hmm. for which a lot of the scams in that like didn't work anymore because mm-hmm. of how like the infrastructure has changed around like paying for the subway and stuff like that. But, you know, I remember learning to like pull back the turnstile and so that I could scoot in and then go through and, and things like that that were actually useful and that I could experiment with. And they were like just these little ways of not paying the state right. um, that I was against. And... Yeah, I found that stuff you know, romantic, but was like a wuss a lot. <laughs> so I've, I don't know that I've actually stolen really anything ever, actually. I'm um, so disappointed in you. Right I know, now. I know, I know. I've probably feels, stolen stuff really with you. I you mean, probably I've, have I've, never I've, known. Like, I've probably been with you and stolen shit and you like, right, right. are oblivious. I have, I have like gone dumpstering, so I guess that's technically kind of like you're not. That's technically illegal to like go into dumpsters. But anyway, um, yeah, I was a wuss about it. I also like very, and again, like I think, I think this is why people who are actually poor have criticisms of romanticizing living kind of an impoverished lifestyle, is because I remember very early thinking like what if a worker at the store gets in trouble because of, you know, and that generally won't happen at someplace like Target or something, but it might happen in other places, like a worker could get in trouble. And I remember very early being like, I don't think this necessarily makes sense. But yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not, I'm not anti it though. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of, Crime Think is like an amazing, it was, it is, it's like an amazing uh, a recruitment tool for 18 through early 20s youngsters who want to feel like they belong to something exciting and important. For better or worse, crime think is kind of a root. So that makes sense. So it does sound kind of like, and again, we all demonstrate a level of privilege by the fact that we were, you know, in college spaces and had access to this kind of stuff. So that's our stories. Before we dig more deeply into what we mean by this idea of anarchism, we had some questions about, so we just described rejecting liberalism in favor of be, of radicalism, right? Of things that are so far left that they're considered radical to, um, you know, the, the system that we, the, the framework that we have. We are also feminists. So we're radicals and we're feminists, but there's a difference between that and radical feminism. And so there's some listener questions about that. So Melody, do you want to unpack that. I would love to unpack that. There's two versions of radical feminism. <laughs> one is radical feminism and one is radically feminist. Uh, so <laughs> radical feminism, like capital R, capital F, is if you're up to date on, on other lingo, these are the people that are often called TERF, so trans exclusionary radical feminists. And the reason they get that name thrown at them, so that is a bad thing to be called, is because they are very women centric. And when I say women, I mean the like W O M Y N, you know, woman, the biology of being a woman, that kind of feminist. And if you're listening, you're like, yeah, that's me. Just keep listening and you'll probably like disidentify with it, maybe. So they very much see like the female sex biologically as a thing that is in oppressed by the male sex. And so I'm getting this from, I should cite my source, Uh, there's a Radical Feminist Collective online and their website Uh. is radfemcollective.org. And so this is just where I'm getting their, and I'm, I'm quoting them, I'm using their definition because it's actually a really good really good definition of what radical feminism is. And the deeper you get into the definition is when it starts to maybe 
pull up some red flags for you. So yes, that, you know, women are globally oppressed by men, but they really focus on the biological elements of being a woman or a man, which we've talked about on this podcast as being problematic because that that all of that stuff is on a spectrum. It's not an either or black or white kind of thing. And so they'll say things like, we believe that male power is constructed and maintained through institutional and cultural practices that aim to bolster male superiority through the reinforcement of female inferiority. One such manifestation of that is the patriarchy again. um, But then again, it starts going into the not anatomy. So they'll say, we believe that uh, gender is to be a socially constructed hierarchy, which functions to repress female autonomy and has no basis in biology. Okay. Radical feminists also critique all religions and their institutions and other practices that promote violence against women, such as prostitution and pornography. But it's this focus on biology, on the the sex of the person, and then also this um, shaming of sex work and pornography as inherently anti Feminist. The anti-porn feminists are these radical feminists who just say, no matter what, the concept of pornography is anti-woman and it is a form of rape and they use very strong words. So Andrea Dworkin would be somebody you could read and really get a sense of what radical feminism is. And they're also really into... Um, shaming sex workers and just saying that that shouldn't exist and that there's no way that women have the agency to choose to do these things. And that's where I really like cannot identify. I can't identify with this stuff anyways, but this lack of agency that they give women to be able to make these choices, they don't even give them the option of maybe thinking that this could be their choice. So that's radical feminist. It's also very white. It's not intersectional. The feminism that I think some of the listeners were talking about, somebody was saying like white feminism. And that to me is like liberal feminism. So if you want to do some Googling and like figure out what liberal feminism is, it's really just like the whitewash stuff, the Hillary Clintons, the women's marches, not intersectional, very like let's work within the system to make change. And where radically feminist people So they're not the radical anti-porn feminists and they're not the Hillary Clinton feminists. They're kind of, if it's a spectrum, it's more rhizomatic, kind of like a branch off of some of this is like we, I'm so I identify as like radically feminist. You know, yes, the patriarchy gets us down and I'm very clear about that, but I'm also not willing to work within the system sometimes to dismantle this stuff. And it's also very much about women working together. So instead of saying like, you sex workers, like I want nothing to do with you because you are dupes of the patriarchy. It's much more working together and it's also much more intersectional, trans inclusionary, and also seeing other issues as feminist, even if they're not maybe on the first level feminist, right? So immigrant rights, not everybody sees that as a feminist issue, but radical feminists, radically feminists would say Mm -hmm. this is a feminist issue because these immigrants are women and there's children and this is all about labor and so things with marxism and anarchy start and anarchism start getting meshed in together as well it's hard to find a definition of like the form of feminism that i identify with and that rachel does as well i think one reason for that is because there's still nuances you identify as further left than you know if if you are a feminist who identifies further left than liberal cool you're probably like a a radical and a feminist but there are like marxist feminists and there's anarcho-feminists and there's people who don't identify as feminists who are on the radical end of the spectrum and all of those things. So like there isn't like a clear definition. It's just like about your it's like about your political framework and analysis and how that manifests in your feminism, you know. So it doesn't you know, it doesn't surprise me that there wasn't like a Googleable way to be 
to, to umbrella that, you know. Yeah. So I apologize to listeners. I wanted to have a definition for you all, but it's just I really just have to kind of speak from my experience. And would you add anything to like the radical? I don't even radical feminism is the wrong term because I don't want people to think that it's the anti-porn kind. So I also just like want to nuance like there there can be radical. There can be people who are anti-porn who are leftists and feminists. I think the bigger issue with radical feminism, yes, the anti-porn thing and the anti-sex work thing also called SWERF. That's another like acronym that gets thrown around. Um, sex sex work, exclusionary feminist, radical feminists. Love it. Love to hate it. You you unpacked it enough. I just I just don't want to like shorthand it as like the anti-porn feminist because like it's a little more complicated it's than that. Turf. It's can... more right now. The way that it's the way that it's implementing mm-hmm. itself now is it's a lot more turf turf related than the porn oh. thing's old. I was going to ask for permission to maybe posit a language clarification. Yeah. Maybe radical feminist versus feminist radical mm, yeah Ooh. that's that's helpful is it helpful? i like that i like that yeah i don't want to cause more confusion because i know <laughs> it, but we could talk about the same thing with like social democrat versus democratic socialist totally it gets totally. very confusing Ooh, but yeah. it, you know totally i think that's great so there there you have it listeners the the man taught us god <laughs> <laughs> do you think you could give like a one sentence quick version of why you choose to be a feminist ally instead of a feminist sure so uh feminist ally is a term was something that was introduced to me by my partner and it's sort of a way of acknowledging that while i support feminists in every way that i can i don't have necessarily the experience to speak about feminism um in the same way that um people who identify as women do i don't have a ton of fully formed thoughts on the idea, but Mm -hmm. out of respect to that idea, I tend to identify as feminist ally rather than feminist. That hasn't changed my feelings on the topic of feminism. It's just a way of acknowledging like my male privilege, I think. Totally. Totally. Yeah. That hopefully didn't confuse people more, but feel free. We'll link and put in the newsletter links to clarify more what we mean by that term radical feminism will explain what it means to be a feminist radical or a radical who supports feminist causes, etc., is an ally in feminism and how how those things are nuanced. So one example of radical politics that we've discussed again in relation to the black bloc and that have just that's just come up on on our show before and that folks seem to have questions about is this idea of anarchism. So without further ado, Elias, we'd like you to jump in more. You kind of already said this, but like you see a difference between anarchy and anarchism. So what talk about what anarchism is as a theory. Anarchism or anarchy literally means without rulers, if I remember correctly, like the etymology of the word. So it's the idea that people can live um, in relative harmony without having authority figures telling them how to live. And that's the most, I think, basic definition of anarchism. And then from there, there are many different flavors, if you will, of anarchism, which can be talked about at length, in depth, argued about. And uh, there's a whole section of Facebook groups called Left Book or kind of known as Left Book, where you can really get into the weeds if you'd like to. I don't necessarily recommend it, although it can be fun at times. But I, I think it the appeal or maybe the basic appeal for a lot of people, there's an Edward Abbey quote that says, um, anarchism is democracy taken seriously, which I think is making reference to direct democracy and the idea of not having sort of a majority rules kind of tyranny of the majority system, mm-hmm. not really talking about representative 
representative democracy in the same way that we do in our current system, um, but talking about a fully egalitarian consensus, coming to consensus, <laughs> or at least the idea of, of having consensus about not needing to come to consensus on certain issues. So for example, we, we practice these decision-making these decision making methods in our lives every day. If you've got a group of five or 10 friends that have all gone out to see a movie together and then people say, hey, let's go get dinner and everybody's trying to decide where to get dinner. There are some people that are like, I'll eat anywhere. There are some people that are like, hey, I just had burritos last night. Mm-hmm. I don't want to get burritos. You know, there's there's varying needs. And if you've ever gone through that situation and come out on the other end where everybody sort of decided to go to one place or decided that they were going to go to a place that was nearby another place so that some people could split off and get takeout or whatever, then you've come to a decision with a bunch of people without an authority figure without uh, somebody taking a leadership position. And that's sort of how I see anarchism is that everybody at base has anarchist ideas. It's just whether or not they feel like they can carry them to fruition with larger groups. Mm -hmm. There's controversy over RuPaul's Drag Race, but I think that RuPaul (laughs) has a great quote, which is, you're born naked and the rest is drag. I would argue that everybody's born an anarchist and the rest is politics. (laughs) Did you come up with that yourself? That analogy? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I like that. Yeah, I think that's a lovely... Uh, a lovely definition, and I and I appreciate that like concrete example because I think that people don't get concrete examples of like what that might look like. So thank you for that. In order to like sort of unpack all the many different ways that this could look like, because that's like okay, making a decision about where to go to dinner is like a lot more simple than making a decision about how to build a society. So that's when we get into like all the different types of anarchism, what some people call anarchism with adjectives. First, maybe why don't you say what you identify as, and then maybe just a general overview of some of the other versions? So generally speaking, I I identify as anarcho-communist. So that's the idea that communism rather than capitalism is the sort of economic system under which I would prefer to live. So people creating value and distributing surplus value amongst the people who need it, uh, not according to how much work they've done, but according to how much each person needs and everybody contributing, you know, not necessarily an equal amount, but what they can. The the sort of patron saint of uh, anarcho-communism would be Peter Kropotkin, who wrote um, The Conquest of Bread and Mutual Aid in the early 1900s, which are not, the, you'll see memes going around like, read the bread book, and you, you don't need to read the bread book. You can <laughs> skim the Wikipedia page of the bread book. Anarchism and anarcho-communism in particular are things that while there's a ton of theory that you can delve into, they're meant to be part of a popular politics. So I don't think anybody should feel like they need to read one thing or another before they start, you know, thinking of themselves or thinking as certain things as anarchist. Mm -hmm. But uh, anarcho-communism is usually represented by red and black flags. If you've seen them at protests or in the black bloc, also represented by red and black is anarcho-syndicalism, which is a little bit more uh, detail-oriented. So the idea is that decisions, while there would be sort of collectivized groups of people, and those uh, those collectives would be based not necessarily on setting up small communities, or they would, but they would be specifically based around different trades. Mm -hmm. And some people say that this is an outmoded idea because, you know, we're not necessarily like a manufacturing or, you know, we're not a a nation in the U.S. that has uh, factories around which or trades around which people can necessarily organize as easily as they once could. But you see unions around and and whatnot. So I think syndicalism is still an idea that's, that's popular. Rudolf Rocker is sort of the person that people point to when they 
talk about anarcho-syndicalism. I think that the book that he wrote on the subject was prompted by Emma Goldman being like, somebody needs to write about anarcho-syndicalism. <laughs> I haven't read it yet. Also, I see on your pretty popular with all the different kind of colors of of anarchist flags um, is uh, anarcho-collectivism. I'm not too sure what the differentiation would be there, but I think Kropotkin had things to say about the collectivists of his time as opposed to the communists. Mm -hmm. um, and they were a little bit derisive, but I don't really understand necessarily like how the conflicts have changed okay. uh, over time. Okay. They have a lot of similarities, though. Yes. They're all different. I'll, I'll post this, um, listeners, I'll post this in the newsletter and on Instagram. Melody tweeted out, but uh, we're looking at a graphic here of all the very pretty colors of basically like black represents, I mean, usually anarchy is purely is like a black flag. And then there's all these different colors that you can sort of add to your flag. This is a side note, but like I feel like two weeks ago you were identifying as a syndicalist. Anarcho-syndicalism and anarcho-communism, I think, are pretty intrinsically linked. It's just what small group structure you're like, what the small group structure is based around. Yeah. And I think anarcho-syndicalist is, again, more detail-oriented, but it also it seems like almost needlessly obscure. Mm. If I say to the yeah. average person on the street, yeah. oh, I'm anarcho-syndicalist, like it requires more explanation right. than saying anarcho-communist. Totally. Sometimes that can be to your benefit because sometimes <laughs> you say communist attached to anything and people think immediately of like Stalinist USSR and right. the authoritarian nature of the Soviet Republic or where it went at least. Yeah. And they have a bunch of preconceived notions. So the meme that flies around is coming for your toothbrush. So it's this <laughs> idea that uh, communism means that you don't have any personal right. items, right. Uh, which is incorrect. incorrect. <laughs> which is a thing I want to unpack when we have a time to devote a whole episode to communism. But we're getting a preview, a nice preview now. So, yeah, so thank you for um, for some of those. There's more. Mel uh, Melody, I want to give you a chance if you had any follow-up questions or clarification questions. I think one question I have is how does anarchism and the way that you practice anarchism work within our current capitalistic society? Oh, that's a great question. So there is a pretty good article that just came out and I can send you all the link, but it came out in uh, fifth column, which is an anarchist publication that they've been publishing for decades, I think, at this point. They've still got a glossy magazine, which is wild to me in 2017, but they also have the fifthcolumnnews.com if you want to check them out. I don't agree with everything that it says in it, but it's called 11 Things Every Anarchist Should Be Doing. And it's a good kind of primer on what you might find anarchists of varying flavors kind of engaging in within the current system. And it involves a lot of education. The sort of educate, agitate, organize is is kind of a lefty slogan or paradigm. I think that's that's shared widely among anarchist socialists, communists. But the idea is to radicalize other working class people in particular and to introduce ideas about anarchy to younger people, to make things as inclusive as possible, to generate in this it actually says, you know, get a job and try to generate wealth and and, and donate to organizations, which may seem kind of pro-capitalist. But um, sort of the idea is, is to be practical within the system that you're working in. So for a long time, there were things that, you know, I didn't associate with anarchism or I would feel bad about, you know, say 
selling a song where I wrote about revolutionary ideas and, you know, what does that mean? And then I realized that there were ways to do it that aligned more with my political ideals than other ways. So I've experimented with uh, like a sliding scale for, for CDs and records. I've experimented with, you know, digital only releases. So it's not creating like more techno trash and waste. Just trying to like recognize ways that I can make an impact. There's a interesting series of paragraphs that James C. Scott writes in uh, Two Cheers for Anarchism, um, which is a book that I read uh, fairly recently, where he talks about anarchist calisthenics, like doing a little bit of rule breaking each day, Mm -hmm. like just breaking rules that don't make sense. So if you're out and there's no cars coming and you don't have a walk signal or you don't Mm -hmm. have like a a crosswalk just jaywalking Mm -hmm. and just recognizing that that's like a small rebellion against like a system that tries to set up rules for everything. What I'm hearing when you just said that is an amazing moment to teach students about anarchism because we have a lot of um, educators that listen to our podcast and I think that's a really safe way for teachers to talk about that theory. Just these asinine rules that we should be breaking every day. That is very different than the anarchism that students might think of when they hear that word. I will say, though, I just have to say this because this was the exact example, and I don't remember which friend of mine told me this, but some somebody that I was hanging out with once said that they were actually trying not to do things that black men have been killed for doing that they are able to do as like white people as a white friend of mine and like great point jay jaywalking is a thing that not everybody can actually get away with because that would enable a cop to be like i mean you're saying nobody's around but it is it is also an exercise in privilege to break rules and to steal things you know that anarchism gets sort of critiqued for are some of those moments that's all yeah being a killjoy I th- no, I think there's uh, I think it's important to be thoughtful about everything you do. I would say that that's an important thing to keep in mind. And it's a hard thing to attach to lessons about rule breaking for younger people sometimes because it's hard to explain various types of oppression and identity to kids. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely something that I think people who are bent on, and I mean that in a good connotation, who are serious about intersectionality within leftist movements have to consider what rules am I breaking? Why am I allowed to break this rule? Am I using for my privilege for good? Right. I've seen arguments against the black bloc and, and listening to your episode, I know that you delved into this where, you know, there are people that say, hey, you know, most of the people who mask up are white activists. And what does that mean? And then I've also seen praise from leftists from people of color who are leftists saying thank you for coming out and getting between the cops and uh activists of color because you know you know that you are not going to get treated the same way that we are um so i think there's a lot to think about and i think it's important not to step on people's experiences who are more marginalized than you and to listen to what they have to say even as you sort of seek to get around or challenge rules that are in place that are more arbitrary. Yeah. Just speaking from experience, one of the reasons that I've I've sometimes pulled out of anarchism spaces is because it just seems so and I, I'm not arguing to work within the system, but it's almost so sometimes it just feels like a pipe dream. And it doesn't mm. have like everyday, like I get the everyday examples that you started listing with the caveat of the privilege to break these minor laws that we have. So that's what I kind of meant about existing within the system, right? It's like, yeah, anarchy on paper sounds amazing and I'm so behind it. But when it comes to living within this everyday life that we have, how does how does anarchy really work? I can tell you how feminism sure. works on an everyday, but like how does anarchism come out in our day-to-day system? So 
I, I think a lot of it is about seeing things through what James C. Sagat calls an anarchist lens and trying to find the way to align your principles with what you're actually doing. So for a concrete example, like let's say I need uh, a new winter coat. It's mine. I don't know. I lost it or it's just become so destroyed um, that I can't repair it. So the first step for me as an anarchist would be, OK, do I have something that I can repair or reuse? And if I can, then it's reasonably going to protect me from the elements, then I'll try to do that. But if I want something new or I need something new, um, the next would be buying secondhand because it's already something that's been purchased. I'm probably buying it from a charity shop. I might avoid Salvation Army, for example, because I know that that they have sort of uh, principles that I don't agree with about a militarized hierarchical structure and being anti or being somewhat homophobic um, and kind of a Christian organization, which I don't and not a radical Christian organization. So I might like make decisions. And if that sounds really depressing, I think it can be at first to be like, oh, I can't enjoy this thing anymore because it's not anarchist. But the idea is to do what you can, as you said, within the system. So I'll repair something. I'll get it secondhand. I'll talk to friends if maybe they have an extra garment lying around or something like that. And then if I do need to buy new, I'm going to try to buy from a small business. I'm going to try to buy from maybe a a business that's owned by people of color or that's run by women um, so that the money that I do have to spend is going into something that's going to cause the least or it's going to benefit the state the least um, because I don't believe in the state. So that's just one example, but others would be, you know, trying to share skills A lot of times, you know, especially in the kind of the gig economy, we try to think of what we can get for something that we're sharing with another person. And the idea of like anarcho-communism in particular is to make sure that we're spreading the wealth, especially amongst people who don't have the means to get what we might have to give otherwise. My band, for example, like if we're going to like play a house show, we're probably not going to ask for any money. If a hat is passed, that's great. If we're going to a college or we're playing for a business, we're going to fight as hard as we can to get as much money as we can. Um, And if we get an absurd amount that we have no one to pay back for, which we're in enough debt that that hasn't been a problem yet. (laughs) But, you know, for example, like we've had licensing opportunities recently and said like, okay, well, if we're okay, if we haven't paid back our independent record label where we don't have a contract and we just have a friendly handshake with our friend, then maybe we can donate that money to Black Rose Anarchist Federation or we can donate that money to Black Lives Matter Cambridge or, you know, people who have an ask right now where we're taking money from a corporation. Yes, but then we're funneling it into something that is good and is going to um, build community. Mm-hmm. That's super helpful. And I think some listeners, well, we were, while you were explaining all that stuff, I was like, that's what I do. Like, so it's good to know that I still like the anarchist values that I don't see as anarchist values truly are. And I think a lot of listeners will really resonate with some of those uh, lifestyle choices that you explained. So thank you. Sure thing. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say that, you know, obviously it reminded me, reminded me a lot of our discussion on lifestyle politics and how I sometimes am like, okay, yeah, but is that making any structural change, which is why mm-hmm. I lean more towards Marxism and communism. But I will say, though, that I think another thing about identifying as a radical and having radical politics is articulating possibilities for, you know, another world, right? Is like articulating that, saying out loud that, like, there are other ways that things could be. And I think that in itself isn't necessarily going to, you know, clearly it still hasn't dismantled our system, and anarchists and communists and socialists, et cetera, have been meeting in spaces and talking about their ideas for a long time. But there are societies where there are, you know, 
autonomous communities and obviously communism has been attempted. All of my point is in saying is that, you know, Mel, I feel like you were like, what, how do you do anarchy? Like, how do you do it? And for me, I think a thing about having radical politics, thinking about theories and having a framework and analysis and an understanding of the world through, like you said, like an, an anarchist lens or, 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 you know, a radical lens, uh, having, having that kind of framework is so fucking important because it enables people to understand that capitalism isn't the only way that things could be, that there are other things that are possible and that people are talking about it and thinking about it and committed, even if it's just in sending memes along, <laughs> which um, is does absolutely almost nothing, but is like meaning that people are invested in sharing these ideas. And I had, I'll post an article that I was just like so delighted by about how like communist memes are are like being spread most by like Generation Z and like the youth are just getting into communism because of these memes. And like that's not doing much, right? Like they're using the master's tools to pass around memes of, you know, Marx saying funny things. But it means that these ideas are being thought about and that the word communism is being shared in a way that isn't only pejorative. So all of that is to say is that I think those of us who have radical politics, sometimes we can't like do them in the system, right? We, sometimes we can't, we can't do like do our radical politics, but I think that thinking them, believing in them and talking about them isn't nothing. Yeah. You, I, you can, you can always push for something better or something that might lead to something better in almost any situation that you're in, uh, where you have even a little bit of privilege. And I think like hanging on to that and fighting for it is important. And I think even the meme culture is important because if you think about something like I'm, I'm trying to think of a better example than this, but the first thing that popped into my mind for some reason was like the how you doing Joey thing from Friends. Like yeah. if you hadn't seen Friends, you would be like, I don't understand why isn't that funny. Right. Or, why is that funny? And I haven't actually even seen that episode, but like know enough about it. You like you get these ideas or you hear these phrases and you need to go to somebody if you don't think it's funny. And if you right. want to think it's funny, then you have to ask them, what does it mean? And if your friend can explain in a few sentences like that episode or what was going on or something like that, then like you become aware of and you become a part of that sort of meme sharing experience. So if you see something that has like a cat that looks like Karl Marx and says, <laughs> you know, this cat looks like he's about to drop the hottest economic theory of whatever it was, 1886 or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. And, and you're like, that's hilarious because that cat looks funny, but I don't understand the reference to 1886. And you do some digging and you have to ask somebody and they're like, oh, well, Karl Marx released, you know, uh, the Communist Manifesto and like, yeah. you know, this year, uh, you know, then that person has like passed on knowledge right. in a way that like they were looking for it, got the knowledge and they may or may not delve into it. Right. But that fact has been transmitted because of the sort of humor and wanting to be in on the joke. And totally. so I think it like it's a good way of spreading information, honestly. Totally. I mean, and people do it naturally it's not it's not coercion it's not right. like it's not an ad campaign it's just happening between people it's popular power yep. and it's popular content that's like being produced by people who aren't content producers or yeah. influencers i'm making air quotes yeah. by the way <laughs> yeah absolutely and that reminded me of you had mentioned wikipedia earlier and uh, i also have to, another person i should have given a shout out to when i was naming my my like mentors my friend jacoby in college we would like literally just like read wikipedia pages about different kinds of anarchism and be like okay which one do we like most feel like and you know wikipedia also like they ask for donations whatever but it's amazing free information which is incredible and wonderful and as an educator, I'm like, yeah, if 
I don't know, Mel, I don't know. I, I mean, we as educators, we're like not supposed to like nobody's supposed to cite Wikipedia. But if people want to go to Wikipedia, like figure it out and be like, oh, I get it now. Like what did Wikipedia link like cite? And I'll like cite that in my paper. But I needed to understand in a very simple way. And Wikipedia helps. Um, so, yeah, just like that idea of like learning. You can learn so much. And it's so cool that people wanted, like you said, not being coerced to do it. But I don't know. And that and then it, and it builds community. And that can be really powerful. I don't know, Mel, what are your thoughts on that? My meme consumption is low. I also tell my students <laughs> that Wikipedia is a great place to get an overview on a topic. It's a good place to start and then to also just go and look at those sources and then move from there. But no, never quote Wikipedia because it's just basically a summary of the Internet. So, yeah. And then, yeah. well, we could get into all the issues of like who edits Wikipedia and research shows that it's mostly white guys. And so yeah. that knowledge is, although in anarchism, white men do tend to proliferate manarchists manarchists indeed and indeed. and, and brochalists <laughs> kind of like the bernie bros but yep more the bro proletariat but i don't like that as much because i i think it doesn't work as much the proletariat yeah, yeah i don't really yeah. think but there are a lot of class reductionists in both like yeah it's true in in anarcho-communism and in kind of uh you know socialist communist circles right. Um, and I think it's something to watch out for. Totally. But it's maybe a 202 topic. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, Elias, um, do you think a 202 topic is the difference between communism and socialism? I think that would be a great 202 topic. I also think, I mean, there's plenty to dig in on with anarchism. But if, if you know, unless, unless you're an anarchist podcast, you maybe don't want to devote like more <laughs> than one episode. But yeah, one thing that I, I wanted to quickly mention, if I could, was so the idea of um, anarchist organizations not sort of doing much within the current political system, as opposed to just sort of the cultural milieu, is, is one that I've sort of been challenging myself uh, to recognize and to explore. And one of the things that I came across that people might be interested in looking up more on, I've just started sort of an essay by Murray Bookchin on, on what he calls um, libertarian municipalism. It's this idea of building political power at the smallest levels possible and, and not taking on power where you would be more than sort of a facilitator of popular power and of the community's power. Um, and I think that there are some people within the the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, that are sort of on that tip lately. And that's been really interesting to me. And as an anarchist, I was struggling to figure out how to support them without feeling like I was uh, letting go of certain anarchist ideals about not supporting political parties. Mm -hmm. And I think that answer is in finding small candidates that like live in your community that are about what you're about and are opposing big developers and are pushing for more affordable housing, because those are things that are inherently progressive is a term that gets thrown around a lot, but are inherently progressive, are inherently lefty, I think, and, um, and, and pushing for those things regardless, not being a, a purist about getting involved in electoral politics, if that's one of the tools that you can have in your tool box. So you are an anarchist who votes. I'm an anarchist who votes. Yeah, I definitely I have yeah. a lot of feelings around <laughs> privilege and not voting and what it means and what it what it can tell the, the current system. Yeah, I don't think the system cares whether you didn't vote because you forgot it was the day to vote or whether you didn't vote because you're a principled anarchist who can like deliver a, right. you know, 6,000 word essay on right. why vo voting is a problem. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you have it, kids. Anarchists can vote. All your all your myths are busted. Everyone's going to hate you, though. <laughs> 
the liberals like, hate you because you're talking about how the voting that you're doing is something that you're forced into right. because of your politics and the anarchists that don't vote hate you because you're an anarchist that votes. But it's true. So you're yeah, you're going to feel terrible, but you can but they but you can exist. It's a it's a possible thing. Um any other final thoughts that you want to share with us? My goodness. I would just say if you're curious about this stuff, I would say jump into it any way that you can. Reading Wikipedia is great. Going down Wikipedia wormholes, there's tons of really good podcasts. There's a project called Resonance, which is an anarchist audio distro that um, they do audio versions of zines and other things. And that makes it really accessible to folks who maybe can't sit like reading for a long time or like working and but can listen to something in their headphones or, you know, and, and talk to other people. And I guess don't get discouraged by like, there's a lot of people that like to make esoteric jokes or have like, infighting like about lefty politics and i would say just don't get discouraged by that because there's there's good folks out there who really believe what they're saying and believe that it's for everybody and um totally. yeah mel any other final questions when obama was running for president the first time and i was still uh friends with some anarchists in milwaukee somebody had told me that they weren't voting and i think it was the first time i ever met somebody who was liberal and like liberal in scare quotes that wasn't voting and it blew my mind that a young person (laughs) during this era in which a black man was running for president was not going to vote just blew my mind yeah Mm -hmm. it like the concept and because again it's it's uh what you explained about voting kind of like they can't tell the difference when you don't vote all they can tell is that that's one less vote towards whoever but also and some of this might be some like manarchist perspective but you know a you know women and people of color in particular had to like fight their asses off to vote and so it just seems so wild to me that even in like student government i know this sounds like so silly but even in student government elections to not exercise your right to vote historically just seems like an affront to the history especially for women and people of color who weren't granted the right to vote right away but i know that anarchists don't agree with our given system it was just a mind-blowing moment yeah I mean, it, it was for me, too. And I think I, I still defend people's right to choose not to vote. Um, totally, yeah. But I encourage people to vote when it means the difference between a really traumatic appointment of somebody who's going to severely limit the right to even fight for what we want to fight for. So, for example, Trump is going to make it ridiculously hard for people to even protest. Like there's already, as you folks both know, people that are awaiting sentences for like protesting at the J20. There's a woman who laughed at Jeff Sessions and is now facing a year in prison. Like this is an incredibly like restrictive environment Mm -hmm. to, to be an activist under. And for all of her faults, Hillary Clinton's presidency would not have been one that would have made the same restrictions. Or historically speaking, her decisions haven't been ones that have affected like protesters necessarily, mm-hmm. even though, you know, she's a war criminal and she has a terrible record on on, on uh, foreign politics. So that was a decision for me to vote for somebody who, while I'm totally opposed to a lot of her politics, it was going to make it easier for me to push for a world where anarchist ideas and anarchist praxis um, was going to come to pass. And so I think like being strategic is really important. And part from uh, for me, part of being an anarchist is always being ready to do something that may seem hypocritical with the knowledge that I've done 
enough research and I've educated myself enough that it is actually in line with the overall arc of kind of the arc of social justice as we talk about, like, you know, props to MLK. Yeah. Interesting, because there are certainly anarchists out there that are like, I didn't meet any who were voting for Trump, but uh, there I, I knew some who voted for McCain because they thought that would like bring the revolution sooner because things would be so fucking Oof. like. That's dangerous. It's super fucking dangerous, but it's also interesting because we see more political involvement under Trump than we have in a long time, even though it's getting squelched. I'm not, I would never have condoned, you know, voting for Trump. Anyway, just an interest. that's also a whole nother episode. I would love to wrap up with keeping in line with our, our segments, our, our first show back to do uh, an RWL. Elias, would you join us? I'd love to. Cool. Mel, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Do you want to go first? Oh, sure. I'm um, reading. Actually, I want to tie back into some of the stuff that we were talking about. I think we um, were... Um, stepping around this issue, but I, I did want to make sure that we um, honored Edward Crawford, who was just, uh, I will pause, trigger warning for mentions of death and uh, activism. So Edward Crawford was one of the iconic protesters in Ferguson, and he was just uh, testified to a grand jury about some stuff going on in Ferguson. And so I just wanted to honor him and his and his horrible death. And, you know, that resonates with what Elias was just saying about protesters and their voices being squelched, um, literally, to the point of death sometimes. As we know, I mean, this is historically what happens. I will pause. Rachel, did you want to add anything? I commend you for reading because I've been like, I, you showed me the headline and I was like, I can't can't i mean this is just me being sensitive about other stuff but um yeah it's fucked and i'm just trying to stay aware just because i know if i don't just so i can tell my students and stuff you know because they don't just to show them how real shit can get sometimes absolutely and i actually saw an article that was like well everybody's like losing their shit about trump's proposed health care stuff which is fucking horrifying um, it's still, you know, it, nothing is a done deal yet. So a lot of people are just like, ah, here's all the things that could happen. Mm-hmm. Me- meanwhile, like here are all these deaths that are still happening at the hands of cops and the hands of, you know, et cetera, that isn't getting talked about as much. So I think it's important that you are reading about it and speaking, speaking about it. So, so what are you watching? The WNBA is back in. <laughs> can I say that every week now that I'm watching the WNBA? <laughs> sure. Okay. <laughs> Listening to, oh my God, I'm just going to share the story. This morning, I was listening to Chance the Rapper, which I know I've brought up multiple times, but it was with an eight-year-old kid, and this was after my buddy, my buddy Tate, after I'd visited his room, and he had a um, presentation put up about Lady Gaga and all the <laughs> activism that she does, Aww. and, like, biography facts about, like, when she was born and what her real name was, and then, like, he's super into Chance, and but then he did research on him and, like, found out, like, all the activism he does in Chicago, so we were just dancing along to the um, Praise You song. And then we had to skip over the N-word song. There's one where yeah. he says the N-word over and over again. So we just skipped that yeah. one. But, yeah, uh, that's, that's really cute. I know. So I'm using my, I could say something else, but that just popped in my head because it was so cute. There's nothing more precious than up and coming children being in tune with rad music and like understanding how rad it is. I'm just so jealous of his worldview. I was, <laughs> yeah. You know, I was listening to like Green Day on tape. That's, and like That's so fucking cool. Green Day is rad music. Dookie was like, it was, you don't need to be ashamed about that. I mean, fine. Mariah Carey. I don't have to be ashamed. I mean, about she's Mariah cool, Carey too. Either. I don't know. I mean, like, <laughs> right. Different time. Mariah Carey uses the same font as Black Flag. Yes. <laughs> you can you can look that up. That's it's a verifiable amazing. fact. There is a connection yeah. between punk rock and Mariah Carey. Also, I, love Mariah Carey. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Also, she's kind of amazing. <laughs> no wonder that's why I had such a early 
connection with her. Okay, anyways, it was just amazing. Like, for something that, you know, Rachel, you and I talk about Chance, and then there's, like, this little kid that is, like, totally down with Chance in a similar way. All right, I've used up my time. Go ahead. Uh, I'm reading a couple things, but I'm excited about uh, this was my, like, end of school. I want to read something uh, that's creative and beautiful, and there's a book called Too Much and Not in the Mood by Dergachu Bose, I think, and it was supposed to be like for people who love Maggie Nelson, who is an author that I love. And it's just like very beautiful, smart writing. People call it like part memoir, part cultural criticism, part poetry. And it's just it's gorgeous. Um, so I'm really enjoying that. I'm watching uh, I'm rewatching Logan had never seen girls all the way through. And I have a lot of thoughts and op- opinions about that show. And the, the final ser- the final season of the series happened Um this like a month ago or something. So I'm rewatching that with him and like hate watching a little bit. Do you watch that show? Have you ever watched girls? Yeah. I've seen episodes here. Okay. Yeah. I I mean, I kind of hate watch, but also ultimately like feel a lot of emotional connection to the characters in the storyline. So for better or worse, that's what I'm doing. Um, and I'm listening to, well, the new Kendrick came out while we were gone. So I'll talk about Kendrick. I have to say like, not every song is like a hit for me, but DNA and love are songs that, and humble are songs that I could listen to, that I do listen to, like on repeat, like daily. So, did you buy, were you on the Fi when you got Damn, or did you actually like <laughs> get the album? Because you know what happened the last time that you didn't get the album and then you didn't understand because you yes, missed some of true. the stuff. So, did you get the whole album or are you just doing it on the Fi? On the... I'm doing I'm doing it on the Fi. All right, I'll let you um, know. I got the album. I got the techno trash okay. or um, technology trash, the term yeah, that yeah, I yeah, used. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Dead media. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I told you, I told you what year I'm in and it's not 2017. Yep. I, I know I have issues. My students are like, we will buy you like they're like trying to find a way to get it. they're like we're gonna buy you a thing so you can listen to your a phone in your car yeah 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 oh yeah they've been like they've been on me all semester and i'm like i still bought a cd last week guys i'm so sorry That's but funny. uh i will uh let you know if there's yeah, anything special know. in between okay cool Elias. oh boy so uh i've been I've been reading for a long time. I'm embarrassed by how long I've been reading this, but there's so many articles that I read on a weekly basis mm-hmm. that like my books never get as much attention. Totally. So I'm punishing myself by racking up uh, late fees at the library. <laughs> I figure like if I have to like do that penitent like you know payment of the yeah. fees, that I'll be more likely to read them. But I've been reading uh, this nonviolent stuff will get you killed. How guns made the civil rights movement possible by uh, Charles E. Cobb Jr. I've been thinking a lot about firearms lately, and I, yeah, I have, I have a lot of feelings about We'd love uh, to bring you back guns to talk about and guns. revolutionary struggle, mm-hmm. and um, but it's a really interesting book. Um, Charles E. Cobb is somebody who is involved with uh, nonviolent uh, activist groups during the civil rights, so he's not coming from a position where he's pro-gun necessarily, but he talks a lot about how how guns were used and how guns defended the nonviolent movements um, in um, basically from the late 1800s up to the 60s. He doesn't really, or I haven't gotten through the full book, but he says he's not really going beyond the 1960s because um, the Black Panther movement and whatnot were more explicitly aligned with the idea of armed struggle. And he feels like there's just been enough written about that, but there hasn't been a lot written about how, for example, um, black veterans returning from World War II uh, reacted to sort of 
more even more draconian uh, laws than they had left. Mm, yeah, and ne- especially once they had training um, in in the art of war, as it yeah, were. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so a really interesting book. And watching. So I've been trying to catch up with um, The Walking Dead. Mm-hmm. I love post-apocalyptic <laughs> fiction, um, even when it's terrible. And they really jump the shark uh, at some point. And I don't even know what season I'm on. I, I mean, they've had a few real stinkers when yeah. it comes to the seasons. But I love watching these different communities rebuild, even when it's super corny. I love thinking about what political alignment, like all the different characters are, even though they never explicitly acknowledge it. Right facilitation, like, you know, community building, yeah. all of these things, they're running into people who like are in authoritarian groups. It's, it's really interesting to me. So I like watching that. Also, an even better show uh, is 3%. I don't know if you've seen, mm, I that. seen it. It's a Brazilian Netflix original. And uh, I recommend watching it without the dubbing. I think okay. the dubbing's pretty awful, but the subtitles are good. Um, and if you have to watch it dubbed, if you're doing other stuff while you're doing that, then go for it. But um, it's a it's another post-apocalyptic show. Is it sc- um, so? I can't watch Walking Dead because I'm terrified of scary things. Oh yeah. Um, is it is three percent scary? No, it's dramatic. Okay. Um, so there's some there's some violence, but it's uh, it's basically I'm trying to think of like the sort of three second description. So there's a offshore enclave for people who have made it through this thing called the process. Everything is very kind of ham fisted, but yeah. it's still fun. And uh, once you make it through the process, you can live on this island, and everybody is treated as equals, and mm-hmm. everybody gets enough. Like it's it's almost like kind of a communist society, yeah. but since the entry to it is guarded by this quote-unquote process that it's ministered by uh, basically like a governmental structure all the people that live in the on the mainland which are effectively slums that are you know unregulated but there's no community and there's sort of like this specific thing that's being hung over everyone's head to prevent them from yeah. having this community yeah. or finding their life satisfactory yeah. because they're constantly told there's this offshore enclave so it's following um, people who have reached the age which I think is 21 when they are able to apply for the process and go through the process so it's futuristic yeah but it's kind of hard sci-fi and there's a resistance movement that's just called like the resistance (laughs) or something very creative Um, yeah so it's it's been it's a fun watch and then listening to i've also been listening to a lot of the new kendrick that's that's pretty much it and i love the song pride because it's basically like kendrick doing mac demarco better than mac demarco could ever do mac demarco (laughs) it's like total stoner right right that's so real yeah i love it yeah, I am. Um, I've been using songs from his album in my in the sculpt classes I teach, and thankfully there was like edited version, so um, I can do humble without the word bitch, which is great. So we do. We that wasn't even the thing that was controversial about that song, right? People were more probably not. It's just at my yoga studio, we're not supposed to have any swear words like that. Oh right. Yeah. yeah. Um, what was the controversy that you were talking about though? So the controversy that that I heard about was over the lines um, sh- about being sick of Photoshop and yeah. show me something natural, like, like cellulite, some stretch marks, stretch marks, yeah. and natural hair or something. Right, yeah. right, like like yeah. like afros on Richard Pryor, I think. Right, right, um, right. Why were people mad about that? They felt that it was like a sort of like lip service was being paid to the mm-hmm. idea of feminism as something yeah. that was like embracing like you know quote unquote natural mm-hmm. looks and how it was sort of like exclusionary to like you know people who like you know our models and like their stuff is air, you know, their pictures are airbrushed or yeah. whatnot, that we shouldn't exclude anybody that everybody's, you know, sort okay. of 
beauty should be accepted. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's fair as a femme who like likes filters on Instagram. I mean, like, yeah, I guess I can. Yeah, I mean, I felt a little weird about that line in general, I guess. But but the chorus being what it is, I was very surprised that that was not mentioned in the articles right. that I was reading right, about. Right, right, like, right, right. Huh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, Mel, you have you have you have heard it, yes? You have the physical copy you said? Yeah, but I haven't listened to it yet. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, this will only I'm way, No, but I will say with that with the um photoshopping yeah. argument, I mean, I get it and like this is where Rachel and I uh diverge sometimes with our feminism, but like photoshopping as is has really as all of us know on this podcast that like Photoshopping is really fucked with women's heads about what is expected of them. I don't know if it's really like a third wave feminist inclusionary argument to make. I don't know. I feel like he has a point and I would be with him on that because I I still have to teach my female students that like photoshopping, how bad advertising is photoshopped that they compare themselves with. So, yes, you can wear as much makeup as you want. What you know, do your thing, wear your hair natural or however else you want to. But that photoshopping situation is real. How, how do you feel about um, the Valencia filter on Instagram that makes me look nice? I think it's beautiful and I think you should <laughs> okay. use it. I don't think okay. it's Photoshop. I don't think that okay. is like taking your eyes and making them bigger and adding two cup sizes right. to your boobs and then right. thinning out your face. And then to the point <laughs> right. where you don't even look like who you are. Right. And then right. women are like, I wish I could look like Rachel. And it's like, that's not even Rachel. Right. Like that's the... Right. There's a difference. I'm really That's supportive okay, of you good. using that filter. Thanks. I use it because it reminds me of Michelle T's book. Do you, either of you know Michelle T in that book, Valencia? Oh, yeah. Shout out to Michelle T and yeah, Valencia. Yeah, that's a great book. It reminds me of it every time I use it. I'm like, don't mind if I do use mm. Valencia. Anyway, we're I, rambling. I wish you were using like an open source filter I that know. was like coded by a collective <laughs> in a basement. Yeah. That they were squatting. But, you know, if when you is that going to come out? When is like the like underground Instagram filters? Like, I mean, somebody needs to like invent that. I'm not at liberty to talk about that. <laughs> oh, OK. <laughs> Elias has some information. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This yeah. was a blast. It sounds like we might have to invite you back sometime to talk about guns or other things. I love it. Okay, awesome. Well, thanks, listeners, for waiting for us for a month. We love you. And with that, WTF. Power. Bye. Bye.
Cause my suffer falls And coming out party suck Debbie top balls We trick you late like my balcony 